Matthew chapter 5. We're going to be looking at how Jesus continues on in the Sermon on the Mount. He has just expounded on the Beatitudes, as we call them, those eight Beatitudes, who the kingdom dwellers are to be. And then he goes on to apply how they are to act in this world of salt and light. And now we come to a section of scripture where he sets the stage for the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. When I took my kids to the first Lego movie, I was prepared for a snoozer. I was ready to get a nap. After all, it was a it was literally a movie about Legos. And so I thought this is a good time for a nap. But I was soon drawn in by the fascinating themes that that the writers were exploring through this movie. If you haven't seen the movie, it's about a cold-hearted man called President Business who controls everything through his Octan Energy Corporation. And he represents legalism. Under his iron-fisted rule, everyone follows instructions at home and at work. They're enforced by the cheery saying, I've got my eye on you. And surveillance cameras are everywhere. The master builders are President Business's greatest threat. They refuse to follow his slavish laws. And the meta-narrative of the movie is President Business is trying to lock up all the master builders, all the creativity. But the film also shows the other extreme, not only of, of legalism, but of lawlessness, too. One of the movie's heroes, the former rule-following construction worker Emmett, lands in a place called Cloud Cuckoo Land, a place without any rules, without, without any laws. As Emmett approaches Cloud Cuckoo Land, and he watches the hordes of Legos dancing and partying, he watches the chaos and the loud music, and he looks at it around and he says, I'm just going to say this out loud. I have no idea what's going on here. As Emmett watches the unrestricted chaos that's going on, he says, so there's no signs on anything? How does anyone know what not to do? A character named Unikitty cheerfully bounces up to him and explains, here in Cloud Cuckoo Land, there are no rules, no government, no babysitters, no bedtimes, no frowny faces, no bushy mustaches, no negativity of any kind. Finally, after taking all this in, Emmett sardonically asks, So do you guys have any laws up here? Building codes? Gravity? As entertaining and funny as the Lego movie is, it is actually a subtle exploration into grace, legalism, and lawlessness. And those are the three themes, actually, that Jesus is, is talking about today in our text. Look with me at chapter 5, starting in verse 17. Jesus says, Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. 
Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Please pray with me. Father God, I ask that you speak to your people through your word, exposited as it has been down through the centuries by mere men. In Jesus' name, amen. In Jesus' opening line here, he is inviting us to actually explore grace. Explore, it's an exploration of grace. Apparently some in the crowd saw Jesus as this zealot a radical ready to overthrow the Mosaic law. Indeed, some in Jesus' day thought that when the Messiah came and the new and better covenant would be installed and it would supersede the old covenant. They would point to texts like Joel chapter 3 and Ezekiel chapter 36 that spoke of this new covenant that was going to come, this new age of the Spirit that would arrive this new age where God would actually treat us differently than he did in the old covenant, where the old law would be superseded by this new law that would be brought in by the Messiah. Just as there are some today that see great discontinuity between the old covenant and the new covenant, the Old Testament and the New Testament. They see it as law and grace, as judgment and love. But here is a great text for us to see that Jesus wanted wanted to make it crystal clear that there is more, there's continuity in in the two covenants, not discontinuity. And so he tells them, I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. Slave trader turned Christian John Newton wrote, ignorance of the nature and design of the law is at the bottom of our religious mistakes. Isn't that great? That is as true today as it was back then. Many are confused and uncertain about the point of the Old Testament. What was the main point of the Old Testament? So Jesus clears it up right here. Before launching into his greatest teaching, the Sermon on the Mount, he wants to set the stage for what the law really is. And the first purpose of the law was to prepare for the Messiah. According to the apologist Josh McDowell, the Old Testament contains some over 300 prophecies of of the coming Messiah. So the people were to watch for things like a supernatural birth in Isaiah 9. They were to look for a prophet that was greater than Moses of Deuteronomy 18. They were to look for a king riding in to Jerusalem on a donkey of Zechariah 9. They were to look for the great healer and miracle worker of Isaiah 35. They were to look for this sacrificial king who would put his life on the line of Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53. But they were also to look for even smaller indicators, smaller prophecies, like like just presence being given at the birth of the Christ, according to Isaiah 60, of, of the Christ being sold for 30 pieces of silver, of Zechariah 11, of being abandoned 
by his friends, according to Psalm 38, of being mocked by the people while he was dying on a cross, according to Psalm 109. And so one of the greatest evidences that Jesus is who he said he was is the fulfilled prophecies. And Jesus came to fulfill those. The second purpose we have is that he came to fulfill another part of the Old Testament, which was the ceremonial part of the law. This is the, all the, the sacrificial system that Moses wrote about. In the Old Testament, God instructed his people how to stay in a right relationship with him. And they were to do that through sacrifices. God set up a system where a person would take an animal up to the temple and the priest would lay his hand on the person and on the animal and symbolically transfer that person's sin onto the animal and then the animal would be killed and the blood let out. God set up a system where people would start to understand that sin required sacrifice. In Leviticus 17.11, God writes, For the life of the creature is in its blood, and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is blood that makes atonement for one's life. How much clearer could God be? The Old Testament law required animal sacrifice. It required blood. It required death. It required a life for a life. It required death of one to save the other. And this is the principle that God wanted to embed into his people. He wanted his people to understand that principle. And so Jesus, when he says, I've not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, this is a huge way that Jesus fulfills the law. He came to atone for your sin by shedding his blood On the cross. His life for your life. His blood for your blood. He came to atone for the sins of the world. And the once and for all sacrifice of God to offer humanity forgiveness. The Bible uses that phrase once and for all actually quite often. The author of Hebrews in chapter 10 dives deep into that when he explains to the people how Jesus fulfilled this. Hebrews writes, For since the law has has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices continually offered each year, make perfect those who draw near. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. Author the Hebrews is explaining what, how Jesus fulfilled this part of the law. And then he goes on to say in that same chapter, no less than three times, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. He says again, Christ has offered For all time, a single sacrifice for sins. And a third time he says, For by a single offering he has made perfect for all time 
those who are being sanctified. Through Jesus' death on the cross, the purpose of the Old Testament sacrificial system is fulfilled. That's what he meant when he came, when he said, I have not come to abolish, but to fulfill the law. The shadow has become a reality in Christ. And through Jesus Christ, we are offered forgiveness for our sins. Perhaps you've never really considered that. Through Jesus' death, through his, his given life, you are offered life. You are offered eternal life. You are offered forgiveness for your sins and eternal life. And if you're listening to this live stream and, and you've never considered that, you've never considered the offer that Jesus gives you through his death of forgiveness, I'd like you to, to consider that offer right now. Paul writes in Corinthians that today is the day of salvation. What he's saying there is don't miss an opportunity to accept what Christ is extending to you through his death and resurrection, forgiveness of your sins, and eternal life with him. But there's a third part of the Mosaic Law, the moral part of the Mosaic Law. This is best known in the Ten Commandments that that we read in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5. But we have many of laws throughout the Old Testament. Now those good old Pharisees had had actually quantified these and they, they claimed that there were 248 regulations and 365 prohibitions. Now, whether that is true or not, I think we can honestly say as we read the Old Testament that there is a very high standard of living, isn't there? God requires a very high standard of morality. Unlike some religions, there's no question that God connects his relationship with him by living differently in this world. Okay, I want to say that again. There is a... There is a not a dotted line, but a, but a bold line between our relationship with him and how we act morally. Philip Yancey wrote of a friend of his named Susan. She professed to be a Christian and told Yancey that her husband didn't measure up and that she was actively looking for other men to meet her intimacy needs. When Susan mentioned that she rose early in the day to spend an hour with her Heavenly Father, Philip Yancey took that opportunity to ask her a question. He said, In your meetings with your father, do any moral issues come up that might influence this pending decision to leave your husband? Susan responded, The father and I are into relationship, not morality. Some people feel the same way. Since they have a relationship with God, he doesn't require them to live up to the moral standards of the law. And that's simply not true. So interconnected is the relationship of God with action that Jesus is going to go on in this very chapter that we're going to study to expound on six just aspects of morality. Anger, lust, divorce, oaths, revenge, and love. And then at the very end, 
of this chapter, he's going to look us square in the eye and he's going to say these words. Therefore, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. How does that make you feel? Honestly. Be perfect in all you do. And if you go on and read the chapter, he's saying be perfect not only on the outside, but on the inside. Don't just put on the smile on the outside when you're seething on the inside, he's going to go on to say. Well, maybe you feel a little bit like Philip Humbler. Philip Humbler, you probably haven't heard of this baseball pitcher, but you should have. He should have been inducted into the, into the Cooperstown Hall of Fame. On April 12, 2012, he did something that only 18 other pitchers had ever done in the 108-year history of baseball. He pitched a perfect game. 27 batters up. 27 batters retired. No hits, no walks, no errors. But the reason that we've not heard of him is because seven months after that, in November, the White Sox cut him from the roster. Why? Because that perfection crushed him. Every time Humbler took the mound after that, he tried to be that pitcher on that day. In his next start, he allowed nine runs in five innings. The start after that, he pushed himself even harder, and he got bombed for eight runs in two and one-third innings. Every time he fell short of the new standard he set for himself, he pushed harder and harder and harder. He began spending more time than ever in the video room. He played with every imaginable grip on the baseball. He threw extra bullpen sessions. He ran more. He lifted more. He sought counsel and coaching. According to a friend who was close to Humbler, he said the biggest problem with Humbler wasn't his talent. It was his unreal expectations of himself for perfection. And it crushed him. Humbler was crushed by perfection, by seeking out being perfect. And you and I will be too if we attempt to live by the law. That's, that's what I read earlier in Galatians. You will be crushed by the law if you try and live by the law. If we stare at Matthew 5.48 long enough, truthfully, truthfully enough, honestly enough, we'll be crushed by it, just like Humbler. Because Jesus says, that is the requirement for salvation. Perfection. So what are we to do? We just can't dismiss that verse in the Bible, can we? The right question is, so what did God do? I want to read you what God did. In Galatians 4.4, 4, it says, But when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, so that we might receive the full rights as sons. Jesus lived it for us. That's what Jesus is saying here in verse 17. Jesus came to fulfill the moral law, not to abolish it. He came to live a perfect life, 
in every way, in word, thought, and deed. 1 Peter 2 tells us he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. That what Peter is saying is, neither was it deep down either. He lived a perfect life under the law so that we would not be crushed by it. And he allowed himself to be crushed so that we might live. That's the gospel. That's the good news, brothers and sisters. We, we, when we place our faith in him who came and did, we don't have to place our, sel- our, our faith in ourselves who can't and won't. Jesus fulfilled the moral law so that we don't have to. Isn't that good news? Now, it's interesting. When you hear that, when you hear me say, you don't have to fulfill the law because Jesus did, what is our next question? Well, does that mean everything is lawless? Are we going to go to cloud cuckoo land now? Well, let's explore lawlessness together. That's the next point in the sermon. D.A. Carson, a professor at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, used to meet with a young man from West, French West Africa for the purpose of practicing German. And he writes, Once a week or so, we went out for a meal together and retreated to French, a language we knew well. In the course of those meals, we got to know each other. I learned that his wife was in London, training to be a medical doctor. He was an engineer who needed fluency in German in order to pursue doctoral studies, so he studied German. I soon discovered that once or twice a week, he disappeared into the red light district of London. Obviously, he went to pay his money and have his woman. Eventually, I got to know him well enough, and I asked him if he would do what he would do if he discovered his wife was doing the same thing in London. You know what he said? I'd kill her. I said, that's a bit of a double standard, don't you think? He said, you don't understand. Where I come from in Africa, a husband has the right to sleep with as many women as he wants, but the wife has to be faithful to her husband or else she's killed. But you told me, D.A. Carson said, you were raised in a mission school. You know that God of the Bible doesn't have double standards like that. He gave me a bright smile and he replied, Ah, God is good. He is bound to forgive us. That's his job. When people hear, Jesus fulfilled the moral code so that you don't have to, many of us in our hearts go to cloud cuckoo land. We go to the same place that this man went to. We have, some use it as an excuse for disobedience, for even bending the law. God will understand. He's in the business of forgiving. The moral code no longer applies. We've been forgiven, atoned for, accepted, adopted, and interpret forgiveness and freedom for license. As Sinclair Ferguson observes, take away the law as a means of earning merit and no one will make any effort in keeping it. The law will lose its teeth and no longer hold people. They will live as they please. 
As the ditty goes, he writes, Free from the law, O blessed condition, I can sin as I please and still have remission. But Jesus won't let us go there. Look with me at verses 18 and 19 and 20. Jesus goes on to say, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes at least one of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Here, Jesus is clearly teaching that the Old Testament scriptures are not to be dismissed as he fulfills them. In fact, he reinforces the the importance, the criticality of the Old Testament by saying, listen, not even down to the smallest part of the Old Testament will pass away until it is accomplished. I think many believe that Jesus had in his mind the, the, one of the smallest letters of the Hebrew alphabet is like our apostrophe, and it's a, the yod. Or on the bottom of some Hebrew letters, there are these little, little brush marks at the bottom of the letter, these serifs. Many think that Jesus had those in mind as he was saying this. But he is clearly saying every detail of the moral code is important. And then he goes on to tell us that all these details must be taught, must be passed on. I was listening to a podcast this week, and the speaker said that of the critical need to continue to indoctrinate our children in the faith. And I was driving, and, and, I, and I was taken aback by that word. He used the word indoctrinate our children. Indoctrinate is, has such a negative connotation doesn't it? But, but he's actually right. We need to teach. We need to indoctrinate our kids and ourselves in the truth of God's moral law. How to live righteously before God. We need to indoctrinate ourselves. We need to know that well. How to, how to please God through our righteous living. How to show our love for God through our, our obedience. And how do you know we are loving God? Really simply. It's actually very simple. I get asked that question from time to time. How do I love God? You know, do I sing to Him more? Do I weep over my sin more? How do I, how do I love God? He tells us in John 14, if you love me, You'll obey me. You'll obey my commands. That's what Jesus is saying here. Moral obedience is critical to loving God. Not because it earns us any favor. Not because it leads to salvation. We have that in Christ already. But because it shows our love for God. D.A. Carson writes, Entrance into the kingdom turns on obedience. Not one which earns merits, points, but which bows to the lordship in everything and without reservation. Brothers and sisters, obedience is God's love language. A desire to lead a guided life pleases him. So when we're sacrificially generous, we're loving God. 
when we struggle to give and not to give in to impatience, we're loving God. When we take time to help a brother and sister in need, we are literally saying, I love you, God. But it's not just our perfection that shows love. And this is the beautiful thing about our relationship with Jesus Christ. It's not just our perfection. You know, sometimes we do give cheerfully, as 1 Corinthians 8 says, 2 Corinthians 8 says, out of our heart. And it's pure. And it's perfect. But most of the times it's not perfect. But even our earnest attempts and failures, even our striving shows God that we love him. So when we struggle not to lust and fail and weep in repentance, you're telling God, I love you. When we try to love our spouse unconditionally and fail miserably and repent, we're saying, God, I love you. When we attempt to control our anger and lose it and repent over it, we're saying, I love you, God. So Jesus doesn't leave any room for lawlessness. But there's a second reaction that happens in our hearts when we learn that Christ has fulfilled the law, and that is legalism. So let's explore that for a few minutes. When we are told that Christ fulfilled the law, so we don't have to, a strange question arises in our minds and hearts. What now? Okay, I'm free from that. What now? What do I do? You see, our fallen nature is hardwired for the law. This is shown in in Stephen King's uh, uh, book that was made into a movie, The Shawshank Redemption. He has a character in there named Red who's been incarcerated for 40 years and then is paroled. In his newfound life, he's become so accustomed to the structure of prison life that he's he's almost incapable of, of utilizing any of his freedom. Someone else did the thinking for him, and now on the outside, he faces the daunting and terrifying thing of freedom. What do I do with this freedom? Red confesses that he contemplates various ways of breaking his parole so that he can return to the old life. He sums up his dilemma in one line. He says, it's a terrible thing to live in fear. People caught up in legalism are no different than Red, scared to death of the freedom that grace brings. It's much easier to retreat back into the cell of black and white of yes and no. That is part of what legalism does. It wants to retreat back to the law. We've been given freedom in Christ, not to break the law, but not also to live slavishly under it, not to live under the pressure of it. A person wants to be told what to do because that is known. Just tell me what to do. He wants to see things black in black and white. He wants to check those boxes. When living in Christ is so much deeper and wider than that? It's exactly what Jesus is going to go on to address in the remainder of this chapter. The Pharisees relegated the law to checking external boxes. He's going to go on to explode that and show them that it's so much deeper than that. 
But there's another form of legalism that we struggle, all struggle with to a great extent. And that is works righteousness. We miss the fleshly purpose of earning our salvation. When we're giving, given forgiveness and freedom in Christ, we miss that purpose that our flesh is just born with of what do I need to do to earn this relationship? And that desire does not die easily because we understand it. We understand that, that, that transaction. I do this, I get this. I do certain things and I'm accepted. I don't do certain things, I'm not accepted. That's how most relationships work, this side of heaven. And we transfer that into our relationship with God. If I follow the law, I'll be accepted. If I am good enough, I will be saved. Jesus addresses this too. You can look in verse 20. He addresses this square on. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The Pharisees, if you will, were the president businesses of the day. They had their rule for everything. It is said that they had, had them listed out 368 laws prescribed in the Old Testament. And they endeavored to keep every single one of them externally speaking. They were the most righteous people of the day. The most righteous people of the day. So when Jesus said this, people were aghast. I, you mean I have to live more righteously than the Pharisees? So Jesus is actually saying here, you have to be more righteous than the most righteous among you. It's like saying, okay, you have to beat Michael Jordan in one-on-one. Now, you have to be, outplay Tiger Woods in his prime. If you want to be saved, you have to get in the pool and you have to beat Michael Phelps. Jesus' words here to the legalist are harsh, exacting, unbending, impossible. But to the regenerate Christian, you should hear grace here. How? Because it reminds us of the first beatitude, doesn't it? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's where the regenerate mind goes when they hear, I've got to jump over that wall. I've got to be perfect. Blessed are you when you realize you're spiritually bankrupt. Blessed are you when you know you cannot measure up. Blessed are you when your reaction to that is, praise be for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Because in him, I have done that. Dan Ortland once wrote in, in Defiant Grace, Christianity is the unreligion. It turns all our religious instincts on their heads. The ancient Greeks told us to be more moderate by knowing our inclinations. The Romans told us to be so strong by our ordered lives. Buddhism tells us to be disillusioned by annihilating our consciousness. Hinduism tells us to be absorbed by merging our souls. 
Islam tells us to be submissive by subjecting our wills. Agnosticism tells us to be at peace by ignoring our doubts. Moralism tells us to be good by discouraging our obligations, discharging our obligations. Only the gospel tells us to be free by acknowledging our failure. Christianity is the unreligion because it's the one faith whose founder tells us to bring not our doing, but our need. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. Holy Spirit, I pray that you counsel our hearts and our minds and use the word to change us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.